we are thrilled to be here this morning and just to share a little bit about what we've been doing um, in the jungle and, and where we live. But first of all, we'd like to just share a little psalm with you. Oh, no, I don't have the psalm. No. Oh, I do. Okay, it's Psalm 126, and it says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carry seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So we, as a family, um, just want to, if you throw up the next one, please, um, we just want to share a little bit about um, what has us rejoicing and what has us filled with joy in the work that we've been doing in the jungle over the last um, 13 years with Kids Alive, but specifically the last four or five years when we've been working in the children's home. A few photographs there of the, the children that we work with in the jungle, in the orchard. If you throw up the next one there. Um, this is just a few little views of um, where it is that we live. As I shared with the boys and girls, we live on the edge of a lake. Now, anybody who knows geography, it's an oxbow lake that leads into the river Ukayali, which is one of the main tributaries of the Amazon River. That's probably enough geography for you all this morning, but it is a beautiful place. Very, very humid and very, very hot. So this last week that we've had with this beautiful weather has just been lovely for us. It's just like home. Well, actually, it's cooler than home, but... Um, we're normally at about between 30 and 35 degrees with 100% humidity is our general temperature. Um, we have two seasons. We have rainy season and we have dry season. And both of those seasons comes with their own struggles. The dry season is just so hot and so dry and so dusty. The dust gets everywhere. Um, but then the rainy season, even though it's, uh, I wouldn't say fresher, but you have the rain, it's nice. Um, but the water of the, the lakes and the rivers rise, which brings um, mosquitoes and mosquito-borne diseases and things like that. So um, we have challenges where we live and uh, due to temperature and, and things like that where we live. But more specifically, we want to share with you a little bit about um, the, the ministry that we've been doing over the last five years. Next, please. The, uh, the, the orchard, we have uh, 12 kids uh, so far. We've uh, sent it home, like three, three of them um, uh, last year. So it's been um, joy uh, and, and, and also sadness at the same time, but they're doing a really great job at home. And also we, are, we have a... Uh, eight parents right now, a, a caregivers, and that makes it, and that makes it uh, even uh, a better uh, form to the children's home so far. And we are filled with thanksgiving for um, our house parents. As Freddie said, we have eight members of staff who basically have come on and have accepted the children in the children's home as their own children. Um, it's a really hard job that they have because they are um, living four days on, three days off, and they, um, they have to deal with a lot of issues, a lot of 
behavior issues because these children are children that have come from um, difficult backgrounds. It, there's abuse in their homes, there's neglect. Um, they've been removed for, from their homes by the, the Peruvian state, by the government organizations, and they've been placed with us. So these house parents that we have have been chosen very carefully, one for their maturity in God, in their, in their Christian walk, and also someone who can uh, really give the time and the energy to the children that come in. So we have um, you, just a few pictures there of, of just what they get involved in. You know, it's um, 24 hours a day. They lead the children in devotionals. They share the Bible with them. Um, as well as all of the the day-to-day -day things that, you know, preparing their food for them, making sure they have clean clothes to wear, teaching them what it means to be part of a family. Because these children, many of the children come from really difficult backgrounds. They don't know what a family looks like. And so the responsibility that these house parents and caregivers have is that they are showing these children what it means to, to live in a God-designed family. Um, what it means to live with a mom and a dad, what it means to live with brothers and sisters, because these children, when they grow up, are going to be the families, the parents of the future. And so we need to show them the ideal model. We want to show them what God has designed in the Bible so that they have success in the future to lead their own families. And when we started as well, it was a great challenge because they didn't have the, the training so we figure out, uh, after six months, we, we, we thought like, well, the children are not the problem. <laughs> the adults are the problem. We don't know how to handle it. So I said to our, we said to our boss, like, if we don't train them, we are not, not going to make it. We, we just, we're just going to quit. Because it could, it, lots of things can, could happen. And they had enough outside to have the same thing, the same issues inside. So they they, we started training for them. Uh, not only online, but also every weekend having our, our, our meetings over there at the children's home. It, it, was, it is and it was very important to see the changes after uh, the years. So I think training is also a key for them and also for us. So if you throw up the next one there. Um, we are really thankful and filled with joy for the community, the faith community that, that has come together to help with um, teaching the boys and girls um, of what it means to be a Christian and to follow Christ. Um, during COVID, Freddie had just the most amazing opportunity to baptize seven of the children from the children's home. They had made a decision. Uh, to follow Christ, they understood what that made that meant. And um, as churches weren't miss, weren't meeting because we had a lockdown for maybe a year and a half, when the children in the children's home didn't get to go to church, so we had our own church in the children's home. And Freddie then, as the director, was able to baptize along with one of the house parents, was able to baptize the the seven children. And we can't do that without a faith family as well. And the church in the village has taken on that responsibility to be the faith family for these boys and girls. So our children are involved now in the youth group, in the children's church. Um, we actually have some of the uh, mature leaders in our church have come along to be mentors for our boy, some of our boys and girls because it's so important that we help our children and our teenagers in formation. And those boys and girls who have made a decision to follow Christ, they need 
mentors, they need leaders um, who will be an example to them and that can walk alongside them. And also thinking for the future as well, that these mentors will be involved with them as they leave the children's home, hopefully in the future, and will be uh, a close relationship for them um, so that when they do leave the children's home, they're not flailing and, and, and not knowing where to look for help, but that these would be a, a constant, these people would be a presence in their lives as they go forward. And we try to do this naturally. We are just faithful to the Lord to give them uh, the word of God when they need it. But then after they, they decided, well, we, we just want to be baptized and we just want to do this. I want to take this step. So it, I think it's been uh, great to work side to side with the church and with all the prayers that we, we receive from uh, different churches as well. Mm -hmm. So we're also filled with joy because of the technical and the administrative team that we have in the children's home. By law, we need to have a psychologist. By law, we need to have a social worker, a teacher, um, who will help with the running of the children's home. Now, these people are involved in all areas of the children's lives, and they're involved from the very beginning. So even before our children come to be with us, so the government organization will call us, will say that they have a child that they would like us to receive. Our psychologist and our social worker goes to meet the child, um, reads all the documentation to make sure that we as a children's home are able to meet the needs of the child. And then if that happens, if they um, believe that we can help these children in their path of healing, then the child will come. So our psychologist will do um, lots of uh, uh, therapies and will spend time with the child. Uh, when they come in, um, we do uh, group times all together. They do individual times with the psychologist. Our social worker um, is on call. She's wonderful, an amazing girl called, in Spanish, it's, it's corazón. In English, it's heart. So she's called heart. And she is on call 24 hours a day. Um, when someone is sick in the middle of the night, the house parent will call her. She will go and she will take the child to the, the little village clinic and will uh, try and take care of any needs that the child has, whether that be health um, uh, or any documentation. Many of the children come to us without any of their documentation. So she has to work with all the different government organizations to get an identity for that child and to make sure that that child knows who he, he or she is. Um, and then we have the educator as well, who um, does all the education site, helps uh, get them into school, um, helps them with homework, and helps them in, in all of the documentation that is needed there as well. So we are just overwhelmed by the, um, the dedication that our uh, technical team has when they could be working somewhere else and getting a lot more money, really. Mm. And they just go over and above all the time. And it's not only a, a, a relief for the kids, it's also a relief for us because uh, like if we think about four years ago, we didn't have any of them. So anything, when it happened, it was like, Freddy comes. I'm not a psychologist. Okay, like we are, we are being trained. Okay, let's go and do the, the training, what we've been doing. And it was like a long period of time after that we had, but, but that it's something to why we rejoice uh, so far, right now, because we also know we have more people to do the job, that, which, it, which is uh, we can uh, help in a, from a bigger picture, not only on the ground, but also to keep improving in our work. Mm -hmm. 
We're also really thankful for reintegrations that we've had. As Freddie mentioned, we have been able to reintegrate some of our children. The Peruvian law states that a child should not be in a children's home for longer than two years. That's a really hard, um, it's really hard to meet that goal. Um, we have, several of our children have been with us for five or six or seven years since the children's home opened. And the reason that um, we haven't been able to integrate some of them is because the government organization that is supposed to um, look for family and work with the families, they're overwhelmed because of all the hundreds and thousands of children that are in children's homes and they just don't have enough resources. So over the past two or three years, um, Kids Alive, uh, our team in the orchard have come along to the government organization and have basically said, how can we help? How can we help make this process go smoother? But we also are wanting to do it a little bit selfishly because we want to make sure that when the children that are in our care, that we have grown to love, are reintegrated, we want to make sure that they are going back to a safe place and not just being reintegrated because they're trying to meet numbers and trying to you know, tick a box. So our technical team have come along and they've done a lot of research and they've you know, been on Facebook and all the social media sites looking for family members um, and because of their dedication and because of all of the time that they've spent researching and going and visiting and looking for parents, we've been able to reintegrate um, four of our uh, uh, children over the last two years. Um, and then they will also do follow on after. So it's not just that we, we um, prepare the families, we do workshops with the families to train up the families um, to help them understand the children and what the children have been going through and how they have been living over the last however many years in the children's home but they also then do follow-up so the children are under uh, not our responsibility but um, we care for them for a year after they leave us as well so it's a lot of traveling it's a lot of um, going backwards and forwards the photograph in the middle is of two girls who are from a native community um, and it's about 24 hours drive away from where we actually are. So if you think about that, it is a huge responsibility and a huge burden, not a burden, it's a, it's a huge undertaking to travel so far um, two, three, four times a year to be able to do that follow up with those girls. But we are thrilled and excited that these children get to go back to family. And the key over there, it was like um, the training for the parents as well we normally would have 13 sessions to send a child, which in some of them we couldn't achieve that, uh, but we're working in that so they can have the plenty training because uh, some of their kids, uh, they haven't been at home like for seven years, six years. So one of them, he didn't even know her mom. So it's uh, very, very challenging. So we are still in touch with them just coaching them and trying to help them that way so they can keep growing and they can uh, have an attachment and, and being, being connected with the child. And then the last thing that, because we're conscious of time, uh, the last thing that we are thankful for and filled with joy for is the training, are the training opportunities that we've had in the last year, two years. Um, as many of you know, uh, or some of you maybe know, um, Peru had a really severe lockdown during COVID, which meant that a lot of children were really uh, badly affected because they were basically trapped at home for 
a year, a year and a half. Um, and many times these children were trapped in poverty. They were trapped with abusers. They were trapped um, with no one to look after them, no one to fend for them. They were not able to do school because many times when the school actually sent homework, mum and, and or dad don't know how to read so they can't help them with their homework. Um, so they've got left behind. The government has said nobody gets left behind so everybody moves on a grade even though they don't actually know how to do the work. They don't actually know how to read, how to write. So there is a huge amount of trauma happening in children, in children's lives at the minute in, in Peru, particularly in the jungle areas, um, which are far, far from the city. So we've had the opportunity to go into schools, to go into government organizations, and to train a little bit about trauma, what trauma is, how trauma affects the, the brain development of a child, you have a, a teacher, so the picture on the left is a training that we did in a school just before we left in March. And you go, the teacher is one teacher with 40, 45 children in the classroom, and all of them have different needs, many of them special needs, and they um, have all of this trauma from being locked down for two years, and it's just chaos, and the teachers don't know what to do. And Many of the teachers are, are ticking a box. They just are, are there. Um, the way it works in Peruvian, uh, in the Peruvian system is if you've been a teacher for, for so many years, you basically get a lifetime contract. So you're not having to train. You're not having to present papers all the time. You're not having to improve all the time. So the teachers are just there, basically. Um, not all of them. There are some that really have a passion for it, but then there are others who are just there um, because they're, they're making their money basically. And so we have had the opportunity to go in, to share about development, to share about trauma, to try and give a few tips of how we can make the situation better. Even if they're not learning educationally, how can we help them develop as a child? How can we help them in their behaviors? How can we help them understand themselves, give the children, uh, a, just understand them and, and let them know that their voice is heard and that there is someone there that cares enough to spend some time with them. And uh, the, the other great thing that we could have and got, gave us the opportunity to, to do is the training with uh, people from, govern, from government. So it was, I think that was a great thing to do. So they, we didn't only do that, but also they opened the doors to do in other children's home around uh, our area. So we've been uh, doing that as well. And I think that was a great, uh, like they kind of like opened their eyes and like, oh, well, well, we can do this, we can do that. Um, so it is, that's, and that's what really went over there. Because as Emma says, like, uh, I, I couldn't even do that, like being with 40 children. Can you imagine 40 children with a class and then you be over there? It's quite like, not. No, I don't think even having, having been trained, we can, we can achieve that. But at least we can uh, open their eyes so they can see, okay, I, I could be more patient with this so I could understand oh, why this kid behave like this. So I try to go deeper and deeper, at least um, understand uh, the, the, the trauma, the trauma si situation. So um, we are grateful for that. We, we were... We were uh, rejoin what we were doing, rejoicing what we were doing, uh, what God gave us the opportunity to share with others as well. Uh, there, not only the training, but also 
the gospel because this training is based on love, in love. So it's the gospel. It's Jesus. So if we just have that last uh, slide up, please. So as we shared um, with the boys and girls, this is our orchard family. This is, um, these children have become our family over the last five years of being in the directorship of the, of the children's home. And um, some of them are still there in the children's home. Some of them have already left to be reintegrated with the families. Um, but this has been part of our family for the last five years. And it's, uh, I think that's when we, we choose that Psalms that because we, it brings us any parenting uh, brings lots of joy in our heart, but also it's a lot of effort. So we praise the Lord and we thank you for letting us share a little bit how our travel uh, in this chapter of our lives we are serving over there. And also uh, kind of, so you can pray for us in this transition because we are also in a transition of um, leaving, we are we are we already I already we already left the director position, but we are on the way as well, uh, where the God wants us to go, maybe in a different uh, place. But we so far we are very grateful, and we are in the expectation of what God has for our family. So we we would appreciate your prayers and thoughts in. Us. And we just want to drop in a little, um, if you would like to pray for us as a family, as we go through this transition of leaving Kids Alive International, um, we have been provisionally accepted by LatinLink um, to possibly uh, serve with LatinLink. So if you would like to pray for us and our family, we have little fridge magnets down at the back in the, in the vestibule. Um, take them and stick them on your fridge. And if your fridge isn't magnetic, stick it on your radiator. Um, and just hold us in prayer as, as we go through this transition period, as we go back to Peru in August and, and have to do transition there um, it, while, while still being involved in different bits and pieces. So thank you so much for allowing us to share a little bit about what we do. And um, Craig, it's all, it's all yours. Thank you. Well, I find that tremendously exciting and um, what a challenge. And I was just reminded there when I was listening to Emma and Freddie about uh, these words, uh, a man or a woman never stands as tall as when they stoop to help a child. And I just think fantastic the work that you've done and, and will do in the future. And please do remember uh, Freddie and Emma and their children in your prayers. Uh, at this time and also going forward uh, in the work that we'll, they'll do. Okay. We're going to come to God in prayer and our prayer for others now. And Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning through the beautiful name of Jesus Christ, the one who forever remains the way, the truth, and the life, and the one whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And this morning we reflect that Jesus told us that the greatest commands are to love you with all our hearts and mind and soul and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we're especially grateful to those who've left home and family to serve you. 
And uh, we especially want to thank you for Freddie and Emma, for their children, Jake, Will, Sam, and Amy. And we thank you for 13 years of service for you in Peru, and that you placed a deep love and concern for children in their heart, and especially those who are vulnerable and at risk. And we just praise you for their time as missionaries for Kids Alive International, loving and caring for children who've been marginalized and threatened, exploited and abused. And we thank you how they've pointed children towards Jesus. Heavenly Father, as Freddie and Emma look forward to a new challenge in your service with Latin Link, would you continue to guide and direct their steps? Would you share your blessings in their family? And Lord, we pray that many young people would be led to Jesus through their words and actions. Bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I appreciate we're going to whistle. I'm going to really fly through this today. We've just got a short time together. And um, last week, David told you about how the Babylonians had invaded Judah and how they'd taken away the Israelites into the land of Babylon in or around 590 BC. And uh, I didn't know I'd prepared before that, and I didn't know that's what David was going to, to talk about, but obviously God did. And the, the exile was to last 70 years, um, but even at the end of that period, not everyone, quite a few, had not returned to Jerusalem. And we fast forward to 473 BC, and the prophet ne Nehemiah is born. Babylon has been conquered by the Persians coming in, uh, under King Cyrus around 539 BC. And we, we find Nehemiah living in a place called Susa. Now, Susa's in modern-day Iran, and if you were to travel up the Persian Gulf to the top and go on up a little bit further, you'd find uh, the city of Susa, and that's where he was. And uh, he was governor of the per Persian Judea and cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes, so that was a role of some importance. And if we just go to our first slide, and we join the story with a brother of Nehemiah visiting Susa with some friends, and Nehemiah inquires over the remnant of the people, the Jewish people who'd returned to Judah and the city of Jerusalem itself, and he asks about those, inquires of those of his brother. And the city of Jerusalem was obviously key, as that's where the temple was that King Solomon had built, uh, and um, the news from Judah was stark, and there we have it. The survivors are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and the gates are burned with fire. Now, the walls, as you know, were symbolic of God's protection of his people, and the people, as we found out last week, had consistently obeyed or disobeyed God, and that's why God had to take this drastic step of having them taken into exile. The holy city of Jerusalem was plundered, and Nebuchadnezzar and his army destroyed the temple. And you know, I remember during a prayer meeting last year that one of the elders here 
prayed as we came out of this renewable tenure, you know, where we had to keep a plan to stay open as a church, and we were rejoicing over that. And one of the elders prayed that this church family would not become complacent. And wasn't it strange God answered that prayer, didn't he? Not in the way we expected, of course. Not in the way at all. And very soon, we not lost one, but we'd lost uh, two, two ministers. But God didn't allow us uh, to become complacent. And that is what I want to speak about really this morning. And both our church family and Freddie and Emma here have something in common because we're both now entering a time of transition. We're both entering a time of rebuilding. And hopefully we can learn a little bit from Nehemiah and his response. So if we look at the next slide, Nehemiah's reaction. And if you look at your Bible there, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, and this is what it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And you know, there's a time to grieve. And there's pe people in our church family. As a church family, we've been hurt. And there's a time to grieve. But Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time to weep, and then there is a time to laugh. And the second thing that he did was to fast. And fasting may be not too popular. I know I like my food. I, I, I remember fasting a few years ago for a day, and I really struggled uh, to fast for one day. It's not an easy thing to do, but it's a, a, a probably very worthwhile thing to do. But maybe an alternative to fasting is to meditate, meditation on God's Word. Just even taking a, a little bit of time to meditate over a verse or a passage. And we know that Nehemiah, he asked for God's favor in advance of going to see the king, Artaxerxes. And also, when he prayed to God, the first thing he did was to ask for God's forgiveness. And confession is the first step that any Christian must make before becoming a believer. You have to confess, recognize that you're sinful and confess your sins. It's the first step, but it should be an ongoing process. Every day, you and I, if you're a Christian and you're saved, every day you should be continuing to confess uh, your sins because we, we know we all fall short. And um, the very important thing that Nehemiah did is that he bathed his meeting with the king in prayer in advance. He bathed the meeting in prayer. And Proverbs 16, verse 3 says this, Commit to the Lord whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. So your plans won't succeed necessarily, but if you commit them to the Lord and you're in his will, then they will. And Nehemiah, if we move on to Nehemiah's return, and if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, then I set out at night with a few good men. So the first thing he did when he got back to Jerusalem was he rested. And Freddie and Emma ha have spent the last uh, number of years serving God in the, in the Orchard Children's Home in Peru, and they're taking some well-earned rest. And that is very important. And it's very important, likewise, that you, everyone here uh, in this church family, or if you're a visitor, that you take time over this period to rest, to recharge your batteries uh, over the next 
couple of months. The second thing he did was an assessment. He didn't just dive straight into the work of rebuilding the walls. He assessed the task. And Nehemiah took a few trusted friends. He went under a cover of darkness and he started to work his way around the walls and he saw the condition that they were in. And likewise, Freddie and Emma have been exploring new opportunities to serve God in South America with Latin Link. And in Ravenhill, the elders and committee here have been assessing our own walls. We've been traveling and we're continuing to do that. We're testing where they're solid and we're looking where we need to rebuild and we need to strengthen. And you know, it's important that we seek God's face in doing that, not just as a corporate body, but us as an individual, individuals uh, making up this body of Christ, that you take time to ask for God's guidance and where he's calling you uh, in the task. The third step he took was to communicate the extent of the task ahead. And it was a big task that he embarked on to rebuild these walls uh, and the city of Jerusalem. And he spoke to the priests and the nobles of, and the officials and he enthused them for the work. And I want you this morning to be enthused for the work even though we are in this transition period, there's still much that we can do uh, to strengthen this church. Look at verse 18 uh, of chapter 2, and it says this, I also told them about the gracious hand of, God, of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. So you see, God's hand was upon him, and it was my God it wasn't just God, it was a personal, he had a personal relationship, didn't he? Nehemiah with God. And so the elders of the city and the officials were enthused. So the importance of seeking God, God's guidance and also to give him the glory. Nehemiah gave God the glory here. Verse 19, uh, and you, we read it there, John read it there earlier on, there'll always be dissenters. There'll be people who try to sow seeds of discontent or place obstacles in your way. And I'm sure Freddie and Emma have come across that in their work many, many times. There are people that tell you, you can't do it. This isn't possible. Nonsense. With God's work uh, in his will, everything is impossible. And Nehemiah's swift rebuke, look at verse 20 with me. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. So if you're not prepared to put your shoulder to the wheel, you have no interest. Moving on then, Nehemiah's rebuilding. There comes a time to act. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. So the ministers, the pastors set the example and took the lead, and they, they, they rebuilt the sheep gate. Now, this, this reference to the sheep gate, you know, this reminded me both of the Old and the New Covenant, because in the Old Testament times, the sheep would have been taken into the city through the sheep gate, and these sheep would have been offered as sacrifice for the sins of the people by the priests. And of course, this reminds us of the Lord Jesus and the perfect sacrifice the Lamb of God made uh, for us, his people, uh, the world, 
for once and for all. There was the sheep who were only ever making a part-time sacrifice, and there was the once-and-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And we have that pointer to Jesus. John chapter 10, verse 9 says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through the gate. And Jesus was the gate for the sheep, and he still remains the gate for the sheep today. Um, and people of all types and all talents were used. There were priests. Did you pick up on that? There were goldsmiths. There were local officials. There were groups of brothers. There was a perfume maker. And I was thinking the perfume maker probably should have been tasked to do the dung gate. He would have been the man to do that, wouldn't he? Because I wouldn't have found I'm sure nobody fancied the dung gate. That would have been the last one. But somebody, somebody put their hand up. And likewise, we have some people in this church who are great at putting their hand up to do maybe the old task that nobody else wants to do. And you know, a few months back, our manse uh, didn't flood, but there'd been a really, really bad leak. And all the floors were wrecked and had to come up and we had to get contractors in and removal. And there was a tremendous amount of work done by Jackie and by Dennis here, amongst others, Hazel as well tremendous amount that a lot of people don't know anything about, but they just did it quietly and got on with it. We're back and forth to amounts dozens of times, but it, they just went ahead and did it, and that's what God called them to do. And recently we were doing an outreach to the community, Hope Explored. It was a fantastic time, and we had men and women from the community as well as some from our church family, and we were learning how God when we place our trust in him, gives us a purpose, a purpose in life. And God, Jesus said, I have come that you will have life and have life to the full. And if you want to have life to, to the full, you need to put your trust in Jesus. And in Raven Hill, we need to rebuild Shine, our children's work. You know, it's not that long ago we had 30 children in here on a, on a Sunday morning. We need to rebuild that work. Maybe some of you might be called to do that. In July, we're going to be going out around the homes of the children in our organizations, and we're going to be inviting them to a holiday Bible club, but we're also going to be inviting them to shine. So you might be called to go out into the community and visit around the families. There's a good opportunity there. Anybody that's solid on their feet can do that. Tots and Co., we need new leader, le leaders there. Edna and Alice have done tremendous work over years and years very, very quietly and faithfully again. We need help for a food table and also uh, in pastoral care, something that maybe we could have done better. Over the years, it's been a bit patchy. So pastoral care, and I know some of you already have volunteered to help out with that. You know, there, there'll be shirkers. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5 tells you about the nobles uh, of the men of Tekoa wouldn't put their shoulders to the work. And really, I have no time, and God has no time for people who are shirkers and people who wouldn't at least, uh, you know, put their hands together in prayer uh, for, for the work. So it's the importance of pulling together. And Emma and Fred have already mentioned that, you know, being united, sticking together, sticking together as part of a, a family unit. And just in concluding, instead of following the shirkers' example, in verse 15, uh, we're told about a guy 
called Shalon. And uh, he repaired the fountain gate. Not only did he rebuild it, he roofed it. And then he put doors and bolts in place. But then he said to himself, you know, I'm enjoying this work so much, I'm going down to the pool of Shalom. And that was a rock-hewn pool uh, outside the city, city walls. And he rebuilt the wall there. Now, little did he know that 500 or more years later, uh, a man who had been blind with, from birth would have an amazing encounter there because he would stumble across the Lord Jesus. And you'll remember the story. Do you remember how he bent down and he spat on the, the ground and he took the saliva and he made a paste in the mud and he placed the mud over this man's eyes. And he, couldn't, he could see a little bit, but he couldn't quite see clearly. And you know what Jesus' words were to him? Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And then the man could see clearly. You know, Shalom didn't know that 500 years later, Jesus would use his work to, uh, you know, the Lord would use his work to assist Jesus himself to carry out a, a wondrous miracle. And you never know what those little jobs that you do, the impact they'll make on a child's life or a family's life uh, down the road. Um, so final slide, just in concluding what we've learned today. First of all, the importance of confession, confessing our own sins that we've done wrong uh, and seeking God's face and guidance uh, for our future and how we can serve him um, as individuals. Um, is God challenging you to assist in some way in our rebuilding here uh, in Raven Hill? Um, we need everybody putting their shoulder to the wheel in some shape or form. There's been lots of calls for help and prayer is one of the most vital ways. If you're not strong anyway, physically now, you can still pray. And most important thing is in concluding, to trust uh, in God's promises. He'll hold fast to his promises and bless us if we obey his commands. And leaving you with the, these words that Reverend John McCracken brought to us a couple of weeks ago, and I know Ivan quoted them uh, two weeks ago, but I loved them. And they're very, very poignant for us today. There are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind.